Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. We are continuing our series called Kingdom Manifesto, the Beatitudes. Kingdom Manifesto, the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are the very first verses in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. One person called them the beautiful attitudes of those who are citizens of God's kingdom. And it's not something that we're working towards to get Jesus' attention. If we become these things, we don't earn something from him. Rather, it is almost something that Jesus has worked in us in order that we might come to him. In other words, the Beatitudes are almost preparatory. They're They're embraced by those who are in the process of coming to God and coming to Jesus. And last week we looked at this first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. I heard a story about a church in England, and at this church in England, they had many people coming to know Christ including people who had been in the prison system. And once they'd come out, the church had embraced these people and they had led them to Christ. And so it was a really exciting church to be a part of. And one of the people who was involved in the church was a very high-standing judge in the community. So here you have this Christian man whose responsibility it is to uphold the law in church with other Christians who have broken the law. And at the end of one particular service, the congregation would come forward to receive communion and they would kneel down before the pastor who would give them the bread and the wine. And it just so happened that at that particular service, the judge kneeled down and right next to him was someone who had been in prison and had come out of prison and come to know Christ. And there they were receiving the Lord's Supper together before the pastor, but the pastor noted they didn't really notice each other. They were kind of caught up in the moment of receiving communion and sensing the love of the Lord in Jesus Christ. And then the service ended, and the pastor was talking to the judge afterwards. What a wonderful service we had today. Oh, yes, the judge says it was wonderful. Um, And then the pastor said, you know, what an amazing act of God's grace. And the pastor and the judge said, yes, yes. And the pastor was referring to the man who used to be in prison that had come to Christ. But even as the pastor said it, he realized that the judge had never looked over to realize who was next to him. And so the pastor said, well, w- wait a minute. Who are you talking about? Because I'm talking about the guy next to you. That's an amazing, marvelous miracle of grace that that person, that man came to Christ. And the judge said, oh, I, I was talking about myself. What a marvelous act of God's grace that he would save a sinner like me, that he would take the scales off my eyes and allow me to see Jesus, that he would draw me towards him in his love. What a marvelous act of grace that someone like me is saved. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Today we move on to the next one in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now it's a strange verse, isn't it? Blessed 
are the sad, blessed are the sad. It seems like an oxymoron. Those things don't seem to go together. In fact, we try to avoid sadness as much as we can. We want to live happy lives. Anybody here want to live a sad life? No, no one raise their hand, please, because I know that you all want to find happiness. And at times, we can want to find happiness so much that we actually close our eyes to the sad realities of this world. The sad realities we see in the brokenness of this world, the sad realities that we see in the brokenness of other people. And in fact, we push back on even acknowledging that the world is broken and that the world is sad. In the 1920s, a young man named Langston Hughes moved to Harlem and he was a poet and he began to write about life as it really was. He tried to capture what it was like to be a working man in Harlem and he wrote this beautiful line, hold fast to dreams for if dreams die, life is a broken winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams for when dreams go, life is a barren field frozen with snow. Beautiful, isn't it? But Hughes actually received a lot of pushback. Why must you focus on the dark side of life? Why must you focus on the sad things of life in your poetry? We would rather hear about the great things about life, but Hughes was committed to talk about life as it really was. And he received pushback for that. Julian Barnes is a British author. He was married to the love of his life for 30 years. And after 30 years, his beloved wife died. I think we have a slide of Julian and his deceased wife. And what he found was after his wife died, it was almost like he was stigmatized. Rather than people being able to enter into his sadness, people kept him at arm's length. They couldn't bear the grief. They couldn't bear to see his grief. And he ended up saying some friends are as scared of grief as they are of death. They avoid you as if they fear infection. One particular night, uh, Barnes went out to eat with some of his friends after his wife had died. And during the whole evening, no one brought up his wife's name. They were afraid to say it. So Barnes, one time during the meal, mentioned his wife by name, just to throw it out there and see if they would enter into the sadness that she was no longer there at the table with them. No one said a word. No one touched it. He threw out her name again. They were silent. A third time he mentioned his deceased wife, and no one said a word about her. They changed the topic. And Barnes ended up calling them the silent ones. It was as if they couldn't handle the sadness of the situation. Now, it's strange to talk about all this mourning and sadness in Miami, Florida. We are the capital of good vibes. Many of you have moved here to get away from somewhere else and enjoy paradise to party. You came down here on vacation and you ended up staying. That's what happens with a lot of people. We like to feel good in South Florida. We don't want to feel bad. We want positive vibes only. But, but sometimes that can be used to cover up some of the real things and real brokenness that is real in South Florida. Psychologist Susan David talked about the difference between positivity and positivity 
that really hides emotional truth. She said only dead people never get stressed, never get broken hearts, never experience the disappointment that comes with failure. Tough emotions are part of our contract with life. You don't get to have a meaningful career or raise a family or leave the world a better place without stress and discomfort. Discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. I think the hardest place that we have processing emotions is not necessarily when we see broken things out there or broken things in each other, but broken things in ourselves. Broken things in ourselves. We all have points of pain. We all have points of shame. We all have points of guilt in our life. And because of our past experiences with pain, shame, and guilt, we are afraid of pain, shame, and guilt. And so the places in our life where we experience pain, rather than seeking healing, we often just medicate to get through the day. In the places of our life where we experience shame that brings back memories of feeling worthless and feeling rejected. And so when we feel bad about ourselves, we just shut down and we're unable to really process through that and think, well, what is shame and what is actually good information for me to have about myself? When we feel guilt, we're tired of being judged by others. And so we reject what people say, never actually thinking maybe there is something in there that I need to change about myself, that I need to change about myself. And because we're so afraid of the pain, shame, and guilt on the inside, we often close our eyes to the sad realities in ourselves, the sad realities in you and the sad realities in In closing our eyes to the sad realities in this world, in others, and in ourselves, we are trying to avoid sad emotions. But Jesus is telling us that in avoiding sad emotions, we are missing the God who comforts. We are missing the God who comforts. See, part of being a Christian is facing the sadness of reality. Reality out there, realities in others, realities in yourself, mourning over it and being comforted by God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Followers of Jesus mourn because they experience the sadness of the world as it really is. The sadness of other people as they really are. And the sadness in themselves as it really is. But followers of Jesus find great comfort in the midst of the sadness because in the sadness they can experience God as he really is. And God is the God of all comfort. That's how Paul writes about God in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 through if you can put that slide up. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. All comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction. That word comfort comes from the word 
parakaleo in the Greek. And parakaleo means to comfort, to come alongside, to encourage, to lift the chin of someone who's looking to the floor in sadness. And in fact, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit of God as the paraclete or the comforter. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. Jesus himself said that he would be with us through the end of the age, and God himself says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and he's, he's present with us through the presence of the Holy Spirit, who is the comforter. He is present in our pain, so don't insulate yourself from the pain, rather take your pain into his presence. There was an artist named Marina Abramovich, and she had an exhibit called The Artist is Present. And it was one of the most simple exhibits ever. In the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, Abramovich would sit down in a chair with a red gown and invite a random stranger to sit in the chair across from her. Now Abramovich would say no, nothing, she would make no gestures with her face, no nods of affirmation. She would just stare into the eyes of the person across the table. She would just be present with them. 350,000 people came through to see the exhibit in 90 days. And the results surprised nearly everyone. Matt Woodley said that every day people broke down into tears usually after just a few moments of silent staring. Tears often filled Abramovich's eyes as well. What was behind this phenomenon? A 32-year-old New Yorker talked about the rare chance to connect deeply with another human being. He said, we insulate ourselves. Everyone goes around with headphones. You can be near all these people and still be in your head. Another observer summed up the exhibit in this way, I see you and I weep when you weep. Abramovich noted that as people became quiet and still, she could sense the deep, lonely pain that many people secretly carried. She said, I gazed into the eyes of many people who were carrying so much pain inside that I could immediately see it and feel it. I became a mirror for them of their own emotions. I love this part. She says, one big Hell's Angels, a, a, motor, a motorbiker from a motorbike gang, came in with tattoos everywhere and steered, stared at me fiercely. But after 10 minutes was collapsing into tears and weeping like a baby. If to be in the presence of another human being can bring that much comfort, how much more for us as the beloved of God to be in his presence with our pain, to be in his presence before his face with our loneliness and tears, to know that as we wiggle and squirm and try and medicate and run away, he is there just staring at us, waiting for us to be honest about ourselves, waiting for us to be honest about our sadness and our mourning and our deep need for comfort. We don't have to run. We don't have to hide. We don't have to insulate or medicate from the suffering and pain. Rather, we can sit 
in the presence of God who is present with us. Abramovich said, the artist is present, but we can say our God is present. Our God is present. And the exhibit doesn't just last 90 days. He is forever with us. The thing about pain, though, is if you run from it, you actually avoid knowing about yourself. You avoid knowing about yourself. Ken Bailey says, Christians are never urged to seek suffering. We're never urged to seek suffering. They are, however, encouraged to recognize that suffering is an extraordinary teacher. We know little about the great depths of the human spirit until we have endured suffering because pain rearranges our priorities. Bailey's is getting at the point that if we run from pain all the time, we actually don't even know ourselves. But not only that, we really don't know God. We really don't know God of all comfort. You remember last week when Isaiah, Isaiah is in the presence of God, and as he sees the holiness and righteousness and perfection of God, the only thing he can say is, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. See, in God's presence, he sees who God really is, and he sees who he really is. And when we go before God, we will be comforted, but one of the things that also happens is we see ourselves as we really are. We see that we fail to love God. We see that we fail to love our neighbor. And that, in the Christian, causes a healthy sadness, a mourning a longing to be different. See, when it comes to those deeper things, the sins in our life, we often ignore them. We often try and hide them from the presence of God. We rationalize them or we reject the idea that they're sin. Or we listen to preachers who tell us, don't worry about sin. There's a lot of them out there. But doesn't your sin sadden you? I was on the phone with another pastor the other day, and we were just talking about some of the broken things in our own lives, and it just made me sad that I want to be more like Jesus, and I continue to fall short of the glory of God, uh, my lack of love, uh, my selfishness, the way that sometimes I, I ignore the voice of the Lord in my life. Are you, are you ever there? And you want to be somewhere else. There's those times that that we sin and there doesn't seem to be any consequences and rather than thanking the Lord for his kindness that we don't have the consequences, we grow arrogant and, and say, I'll just do it again rather than mourning that we've offended the Lord. But you know that once Isaiah got honest before God, he received forgiveness. He received comfort. He was called to be part of God's mission in the world. And even more so, those of us who live on this side of the cross, who know God's love and forgiveness and redemption through Jesus Christ, how much more can we receive comfort? Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 1.5b, through Christ our comfort overflows. It's not just a little bit more. It is constantly filling our souls up because we have fresh forgiveness and fresh grace and new mercies every day. 
Therefore, it becomes important for us to explore the depths of the depravity of our own soul because that's where we receive grace and mercy and love from God. Not in what we bring to the table, but in our failures as we come before him. Ray Ortland puts it this way, the saddest thing in life is not a sorrowing heart, but a heart that is incapable of grief over sin, for it is without grace. Without poverty of spirit, no one enters the kingdom of God. That's from last week. Likewise, without its emotional counterpart, grief over sin, no one receives the comfort of forgiveness and salvation. Sin's presence in our life should produce a sadness in us before God. Not, not just a sadness of the consequences. That is not Christian mourning over sin. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says, For you were grieved as God willed, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, without regret, without regret, but worldly grief produces death. In other words, when we see the sin in our own life and it causes us sadness, the best thing to do is actually to go to God. Because when you bring your sin before the face of a holy God who then forgives you through Jesus Christ, that's what produces change. But if we only look at the consequences of our sin or the fact that we got caught in our sin, we will only adjust so we don't get caught next time. But... Godly grief over sin produces a repentance, a desire to change that leads to salvation full of regret about your past. No, without regret. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. Without regret. Because your identity is not in what you've done or haven't done, but that you are beloved of the Lord. That Jesus Christ is your Savior. He is your Lord. He has taken the guilt of your sin on the cross. And to repent and turn to Him is life. But to only avoid the consequences leads ultimately away from God and towards death. See, the God who exposes our sin and is offended by our sin is the God who comforts us in Jesus when we come to him mourning our sin. The God of all comfort. And so when you have sorrow over sin, God wants to comfort you with the cross. When you have regret over your past, God wants to console you with your identity in Christ. When you have heartache over the evil and injustice in the world, God wants to reassure you that he is in control. When you have sadness over the death you see in the world, God wants to remind you of the joy of resurrection in Jesus Christ. When you experience grief and gloom over life as it really is, he comforts you with who he really is. The God of comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, in this life, now, because you are in Christ, and you have the 
the presence of the Holy Spirit with you. God wants to comfort you. He wants you to know that you're forgiven, that you're hidden in his son, that you're his child. But there is a day coming when God will wipe every tear from your eyes. He will heal every scar of sadness. And everything sad will come untrue. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I think one of the greatest movies of all time is the movie Slumdog Millionaire. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. It's a good movie. Sorry, I'm going to give a spoiler. In the movie, Jamal is a young boy living in the slums of Mumbai. At a young age, his mother dies. But he meets a girl about his age named Letika, and she becomes one of his great friends. But they get sucked into this scheme where this man uses them as child beggars in the street, and they don't get to keep the money. Jamal and Latika have to give the money to him. Well, at one point, they realize this is going to go badly for us because he is an abusive man, and they both try and escape. These young children try and escape. And Jamal gets away, and at the last moment, Latika is captured again, and they are separated. And their lives take a fork in the road from each other. The movie continues on. As they grow up, the movie is actually quite sad about what happens in their lives. It's sad thing over sad thing Uh, it turns out that Latika is being groomed for something far more sinister than just being a street beggar. But there's a point in the movie where she escapes and she goes to meet Jamal. And you think everything is going to be right, but at the last moment, she is captured and your heart sinks. And as the men drag her back to the car, one of them cuts her on her cheek and leaves a permanent scar across her face. That scar represents everything sad in her life, and as she's dragged into the car, all hope seems lost. All hope seems lost until the very end. Until the very end when Latika actually does escape and meets Jamal at the train station. And Jamal sees her from across the train station. He sees her, and his eyes meet her eyes. And he jumps down into the train tracks, runs across the tracks, up on the platform, down into another train tracks, up on another platform, and they embrace eyes to eyes. Latika is wearing a veil, and gently Jamal pushes back the veil, and her scar is exposed. Gently, he takes the back of his hand and touches the scar on her face. And in shame and sadness, she lowers her head. For as he touches the scar, her whole life flashes before her eyes. Everything sad that's happened, everything evil, every, every moment of pain is represented in that scar. But just at that moment, Jamal leans in and kisses her on the scar, kisses her on the scar to comfort her. 
And as he kisses her on the scar, the movie begins to show the terrible events that had happened to both of them. But instead of showing them in backwards to forwards, it shows them in reverse. In other words, as Jamal is comforting her with this kiss on her scar, everything sad is coming untrue. Everything sad is coming untrue. Friends, when Jesus Christ returns and you stand before him face to face, covered in the scars of all the sad realities of this world, he will comfort you. Not, not just by understanding your tears, but by wiping every tear from your eye. Not just by kissing your scars, but by healing them completely. Not just by recounting the, the sadness of your life, but inviting you to live with him in a world where everything sad comes untrue. Everything sad comes untrue. If you know Jesus Christ, when he returns, you will live with him forever in a world where righteousness reigns and he is king and there is no more pain or crying or tears. So blessed are those who mourn. For in Christ, you will be comforted. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.